Hi, welcome back to the fourth episode of Talk Talk. I am your host, Emily Osan, and I'm here today to talk to you about ethics. Well, today my co-host is absent, but in his place I have Milu, who is my orange stripy kitty. Milu is a name in Chinese that means lost, and it's kind of ironic because he's kind of grown into that name having lost an eye along his way. It's kind of an old kitty. Old but wise. Former Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Potter Stewart, said, Ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. As in, what you're allowed to do and what you ought to do. But more specifically, ethics is a branch of philosophy dealing with values relating to how humans should conduct themselves in respect of right and wrong, generally in relation to good or bad, of the motives or the consequences of such actions. Ethics is a vast and complex branch of moral philosophy, and there are people that spend their entire lives studying ethics. There are three distinct areas of study within ethics, known as meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics. Meta-ethics is a highly abstract way of thinking philosophically about what is moral or immoral. Most of the time when we're thinking about ethics, we're thinking about applied ethics. And in relation to theory of knowledge, we're not really so concerned with questions like where do moral values come from and what's the source of our ethical knowledge, as we are concerned with questions about how issues of ethics influence or relate to or shape knowledge in different areas. So when we talk about ethics and theory of knowledge, we're really concerned with normative ethical theories, and these are the theories that help us guide us when we're looking at applied ethics and coming up with understanding of what we ought to do in specific circumstances. Today, I want to talk a little bit about some ethical theories so that we have a foundation with which to refer to when we're discussing some of the different real-life situations that arise in different areas of knowledge. But one of the reasons that a lot of TOK teachers don't like to talk about ethics as an area of knowledge is because that it's really easy to get caught up in actually debating what is right and what is wrong when really what we're looking at is the impact of ethics on development or evolution of knowledge. I want you to stop right now and make a list of your own personal rules to live by, your own personal list of ethics, as in what do you consider right and wrong? What must you do or what ought you do? Go ahead now, pause this podcast and come back after you've done that. My personal rules to live by include the following. Number one, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. This is a quote from Miss Frizzle, the awesome teacher from Magic School Bus. Number two, be kind, be kind, be kind. Above all else, be kind. And this is another quote from another teacher, Miss Fraunapple, who is someone I adore and look up to. Number three, Appreciate your talents and blessings and share them with others. Number four, do no harm. Number five, I will not complain. I'm always amazed when I ask students to do this, the range of answers and the depth of thought that they're able to give to this kind of question. 
And I wonder often where we get these from. Is it from our parents, from our friends, our culture, or is it something bigger than ourselves? I want you to set those aside for a few minutes while I talk to you about three different varieties of ethical theories. Virtue ethics, deontological ethics, and consequentialism. Firstly, virtue ethics is a unique theory or view on ethics, which doesn't take the action or consequence as a thing that is evaluated in determining the rightness or wrongness of something, but rather looks at something like a character or disposition of a person. For example, a patient person, a kind person, a wise person, a loving person. We have then what's known as the doctrine of the mean. Mean as in median or average or middle. Neither too much or too little, but just right. So something like kindness could be called a virtue, where on one side of the spectrum we have meanness or cruelty, in the middle we have kindness, and on the other end of the spectrum we have perhaps being too agreeable. In the IB or International Baccalaureate philosophy, we have what's known as the learner profile, and this is an example of virtue ethics. The learner profile are 10 different attributes or virtues that we would hope that learners embody. Things like being an inquirer or knowledgeable or thinking, caring and open-minded, risk-taking, and so on. The opposite of these kinds of virtues would be known as vices. So, for example, being unknowledgeable or ignorant would be a vice. The trouble with virtue ethics is that it's clear that different contexts would involve different virtues. Different cultures would value different traits above others. So how do we know what virtues are? This is perhaps one limitation of the virtue ethic theory. As you've seen from your own personal list, clearly we have different ideas about what is virtuous and what is not. And certainly different cultures pride themselves on different virtues than other cultures. One common approach to identifying or developing virtues or becoming a virtuous person is to find someone that you consider virtuous and strive to be like them simply by asking, what would that person do? Now you can see there's a lot of problems with this because perhaps the person you've selected is really not that virtuous, but just perhaps very successful or smart or creative or beautiful or wise or so on. Perhaps this is why so many religions rely on the question, what would my prophet do? Whether it was Jesus or Buddha, so on. The consistent virtuosity of these prophets provides a structure to lean against in trying to understand what it is to be virtuous. Now, the reason I like virtue theory, even though it has its limitations that we just discussed, is that in Aristotle's theory, virtue is a habit that can be learned and can be practiced. And by practicing it, we can become more virtuous. Contemporary philosopher and writer Iris Murdoch claims that remembering that it's not all about ourselves is one way to move towards being virtuous. And while we may never ever achieve perfect virtuosity, striving toward it is what matters. She says that our chief obstacle is our own personal ego, our obsession with ourselves, 
and seeing ourselves as distinct and different from each other. But that once we realize how we are individually part of one whole collective organism, we realize how interconnected we are. Once we do that, it becomes very difficult to do things or behave in, an, in a way that is harmful to others. She says once we learn to see ourselves as part of a whole, it becomes much easier to be virtuous. This relates very much to Taoism and other Eastern philosophies. The next type of ethics is deontological ethics, or the idea that ethics should be based on rules or maxims. Thinkers of these kinds of theories include Immanuel Kant or John Locke. In this realm of theories, every action has a moral or deontic status. Immanuel Kant is responsible for what's known as the categorical imperative. It's a central concept of deontology. Basically, his idea was this. We should act only according to a maxim whereby we can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Or in other words, we should only do what would be okay if everyone did it. So for example, stealing is wrong because if everyone stole, there would be a disastrous mess in the marketplace no one would have anything that they needed or rightfully owned. And another example would be lying. For example, lying is always wrong, no matter what, because if it were universally acceptable to lie, then no one could believe anything anyone said. So this works well for things like lying, stealing, cheating, being lazy, being cruel, and so on. This is similar in some ways to the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Though Immanuel Kant himself was adamant that these two were not the same. Stepping back for a moment though, remember I said that this idea in deontological ethics that every action has a moral status, a deontic status, so those being things like permissible, as in it's okay to do it, it should be done, obligatory, as in it is our duty to do it, and impermissible, as in it should not be done. When we look at something like lying or stealing or killing from these three different status perspectives, killing may be impermissible in most circumstances, but may be occasionally considered obligatory depending on the circumstance. For example, a soldier in war might have his duty or her duty might be to kill. A challenge to this theory is the idea that if lying is always wrong, should we then not lie to protect someone? And perhaps that's where Immanuel Kant provides this idea of duty. Perhaps sometimes lying could be seen as our duty in order to protect someone or perhaps vice versa. The third theory or realm of theories that I will look at is known as consequentialism, opposed to deontological ethics in the idea that it's not about any kind of moral principle or maxim, but that the consequence of the action is what is most important in determining its rightness or wrongness. The most well-known form of consequentialism is known as utilitarianism. According to consequentialist theories, lying is wrong if it causes harm, but it could be okay if it avoids harm. One problem with this theory is that it's very complex to determine the consequences of any one action. Have you heard of the butterfly effect? It's just this idea that something seemingly insignificant, such as the flapping of a butterfly's wing, 
could have unknown consequences on events later on. So in a sense, it's almost impossible to determine what the actual consequences of any one action is. Despite that, utilitarianism, one consequentialist theory, is probably one of the most popular and relied upon ethical theories in applied ethics today. Utilitarianism is the belief that the right action is the one that maximizes happiness for the most people. In this theory, everyone counts as one and no more than one. The idea is that the action that results in the greatest good for the greatest number is the most ethical action. What's crazy is that there's even such a thing known as philosophic calculus. Philosophic calculus, or felicity, is an algorithm by which we could assess the ethical quality of any particular action or event. Essentially, a mathematical way of calculating right and wrong. Jeremy Bentham is the great thinker of modern utilitarianism. He created this idea of this algorithm and which contained very many different variables. So any particular action had essentially a moral value or quality, which could be included in this calculation. So for example, eating ice cream brings happiness to the person that eats it, so perhaps has an ethical value of goodness. But perhaps other types of actions have a greater value of ethical goodness than just eating ice cream. Something like winning a Nobel Prize might have a greater happiness quality, or happiness quotient in this case. So he proposed several variables such as intensity, duration, certainty, and so on that affected the outcome of the algorithm. By just saying the word algorithm, it just brings to light how complex this mode of determining the ethical value of something is. It seems easy enough to say that the greatest good for the greatest number makes the most ethical sense. But when we try to apply this type of ethics, it gets very complex. One common thought experiment is the trolley problem, which if you watch The Good Place, you will have seen recently a very visual example of the trolley problem in real life. Basically, the trolley problem is this. You see a runaway trolley moving toward five people lying on tracks. They can't move. And you have the power to derail that trolley, changing the track that it's on. The only problem is that it will hit another person on the other track and kill them. And you just have the choice to do nothing or to pull the lever and divert the trolley where it will, instead of killing five, it will kill one. And the question is, which one is the more ethical option? According to the utilitarian principle of ethics or theory of ethics, clearly pulling the lever would be more ethical. There are many variants of this, and one of them is when you take this into the medical world, killing one person using their organs to save five others is clearly not okay. Critics of this thought problem say that it's really too extreme to be applied in real life or that by forcing someone to decide, you've really taken away their ethical choice. But regardless, it does give the idea of this theory. Interestingly, I said clearly that was the choice, but how is it so clear? Is it an intuitive response that I have? Has that come from my own cultural upbringing? Or is it some underlying reason process that I'm using to determine this? A fourth and equally complex 
theory is the idea of moral relativism, or the idea that the context of an event or action actually determines the ethics. Whether it's right or wrong depends on the circumstance. So in the trolley problem, it might have been more right to sacrifice the one to save the five, whereas in the medical field, doing no harm is a principle of uh, doctors. So that circumstance would preclude it the idea of sacrificing one to save others. Or perhaps a culture that puts more emphasis on the group rather than the individual would have a different answer to that. It's all relative. And usually this feels right, except that when we look at things that don't seem right from other cultures, from our own lens, moral relativism quickly falls by the wayside. And when we start looking at real-life examples or situations, ethics gets even more complex. Okay, so we've had a look at three or four different ethical theories or perspectives. Now it's time to start looking at some different ways that these are applied in knowledge. Should ethics impact the development of knowledge? Should ethics impact the value of knowledge? How should we determine which ethical theory to apply in which circumstance? Does progress in an area of knowledge such as natural science or arts that abides by these ethical theories count as progress in ethics as well? And what is progress? How do we even determine this if everything is relative? <sighs> it's really a lot of questions. The thing is, when I start asking so many questions... It helps to go from these abstract questions into concrete examples. So I look to real life. When I think about ethics and progress, it brings up a lot of current situations. Going back to the trolley problem, I read an article earlier this year about the issue of self-driving cars, which have created a real-life trolley problem. Fascinating. Up until recently, this trolley problem has always been a thought experiment, but now with the arrival of self-driving cars, this problem went from just being a thought experiment to real life. Specifically, the ethicists behind the software of self-driving cars have to help design the software to choose between different outcomes, which would result either in death of the driver or death of a pedestrian or a number of pedestrians. These kinds of decisions are determined by the algorithm programmed into the cars. Now, who designs those algorithms has to have ethics at heart. And again, which principle do they come back to? Which ethical theory should they rely on? And even if we can get over that part of it, who is at fault then if something goes wrong with these cars? Is it the programmer of the algorithm? Or is it the person that should have been driving the car? Or someone else entirely? And here we are again at more questions. The thing is, these are good questions, and they aren't questions that have no answer. In fact, the answer is rather simple. It's all very intuitive. The programmer needs to do the best they can to design the machine to do what we deem ethical. And yeah, that puts a lot of power in the hands of the programmer. So perhaps the programmer should be held accountable because they're the ones that are making those decisions from the beginning. But also intuitively, it makes sense that the person that should be driving the car should be driving the car as well. So perhaps it's better that it's a combination of these things. But if we take a step back from this and we look at the knowledge created within ethics rather than the answer to the ethical problems, maybe this brings us closer to an answer about progress. And that is that 
progress is striving towards better and better. And in the case of ethics, truer, purer, fairer, more universal ethics. And better ethics will ultimately infuse other areas of knowledge with that sort of ethical progress. But then what do we do with knowledge which has been produced unethically in the past? Do we just have to throw out all knowledge that was not produced ethically? How would we even begin to determine what knowledge to use or not use? Especially considering that the knowledge foundations of which we stand on were built during times where all kinds of unethical practices, from slavery to regular degradation of women to abuse and treacheries of all kinds, was considered normal and accepted. Great thinkers of the past commonly owned slaves in all different parts of the world. How do we deal with this? Do we need to disregard the knowledge they produced? Or do we just say, ah, it's all relative, that was acceptable in their time, and therefore we can overlook that now. But then what about knowledge currently produced that may not be meeting ethical standards? Why should we throw it out for people in the past, but not for the present? So many different examples come to mind. Firstly, artists such as Charles Dickens. He's commonly thought of having broken through barriers and shining light on underclass, which had previously been ignored in literature. So this is something he's given us. And yet at the same time, he's also known as one of the most sexist writers of all time, not only for his portrayal of women in his writing, but also for his treatment of women in his real life. So I guess one way we get past this is that readers of Dickens have to be aware of his time and his culture and what was right then, which is not right now, and we try to make amends based off of that. But this gets so complicated. Think about if Charles Dickens was alive during the Me Too movement. What would we have lost? What would we have gained? I remember reading about Chuck Close, one of my favorite artists, being accused of sexual allegations. And Neil deGrasse, one of the best scientists of our time, also being accused of the same things. And Bill Cosby and all, all of these people that I admired being accused of sexual allegations. What am I to do with my respect that I had for them if they have shown themselves to be unethical or they have shown themselves to commit unethical acts? It doesn't seem fair that we should hold them accountable while not holding people accountable years ago. But on the other hand, it seems very essential that we hold them accountable and that we not accept this kind of behavior in the production of any sort of knowledge. But how far back should we go? Or should we overlook it entirely? Art for art's sake? Science for science sake? Let the knowledge be knowledge regardless of the producer? Is the work in art or natural science or any area for that matter that is produced ethically ultimately of greater value? Does progress in any area of knowledge also rely on progress in ethics as well? Oh, okay, that's where we're going to leave it for today. I have got so many more questions about ethics, so this is certainly not the last episode I will do on ethics. But... I am really excited because my daughter is visiting soon, and she is a recent graduate of IB, and she loved TOK, so I'm going to see if she'll come on my show and talk a little bit about her experience as an IB student and what her takeaways from IB and TOK are. So here's to 
a great 2018 and an even better 2019 coming forward. All right. I'll see you again. I'll hear you again. Talk to you again next time on Talk Talk. Thanks for listening. Bye.